Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. This morning we're resuming the sermon series we began before Easter on the doctrine of salvation. To this point we have considered our need for salvation, God's promise of salvation, and the person and work of the Savior. Uh, This morning we are going to begin examining the benefits that are ours through Jesus' death and resurrection, through His work. Our catechism divides the benefits into three categories. The benefits we receive in this life, the benefits we receive at death, and the benefits we will receive at the resurrection. And this morning we're going to begin with the first benefit we, we receive in this life, which is justification. Our text this morning will be Romans 3, verses 19 through 28. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, you have caused all scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark them, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Romans 3, verses 19 through 28. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, come up and join me. Good to see you. Good to see you. Come on up. Yeah, there you go. Plenty of room. All right, guys. I was 16 years old and had had my driver's license for about three weeks when I got my first ticket from a police officer. I was driving home
from a church softball game, and it was late at night, maybe 11 o'clock at night, and there was no one else on the road, nobody that I saw anyway. And so instead of stopping at a stop sign that was in the corner of my neighborhood, I just kind of kept rolling through it. And that's when I saw him. In my rearview mirror, I could see the blue and white lights start flashing of the police officer. He had been parked on the side street with his lights off, and so I hadn't noticed him in the dark. But he saw me. <laughs> and he pulled me over, and he gave me a ticket for failing to stop at that stop sign. The ticket said that I had to go to court to see a judge, and the judge would decide what to do with me. I told my mom about it. Actually, I'm just now remembering that mom drove by me while I was pulled over. <laughs> I told my mom about it when we got home, and she said, expect justice. That is, expect to get the punishment that you deserve for breaking the law. She said, hope for mercy. Hope that they won't give you what you deserve. Then she said, and pray for grace. Pray that they'll be kind to you, even though you don't actually deserve that. And so I went to court, and I stood in front of the judge. And do you know what he gave me? He did not give me any grace. He did not give me any mercy either. So what did he give me? He gave me justice. He gave me exactly what I deserved for breaking the law. And I had to pay $125 for rolling through that stop sign. Do you think I ever did that again? Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, in, in what we just read in Romans, we hear that all of us, all of us have broken God's law. And as we stand before God, who is the real judge, we don't have any defense for ourselves. We don't have any excuses. And all that we can expect Him to give is, is what our sins deserve because we know that we're guilty. But our judge has done something unexpected. Our judge, the gospel tells us, instead of giving us what we deserve, the judge himself came down and he took the punishment in our place. Jesus himself paid the price for what we had done when he died on the cross. And when we admit our guilt before God, but we also trust in Jesus, God looks on us and he says, he says of you, not guilty. You are free. That's what we call justification. Because Jesus died in our place God counts us just as if we never sinned and just as if we did everything right. But when we rest in Jesus and we rely on Him as we stand in front of God, we can know that because the full weight of God's justice fell onto Jesus on the cross, God gives us mercy and grace instead. Because Jesus took what we deserve, God gives us all the good that we don't deserve. And we'll, talk about more, uh, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But now, I just want you to remember that Jesus, because of Jesus, the judge counts us as right in His sight. 
just because we trust in Jesus. And that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat. If you've not already done so, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Our text today is Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. As Sam said, we are resuming the series of sermons that we began before Easter on the doctrine of salvation. And so for the next several weeks, about eight weeks I think, we are going to be focusing on the benefits that we receive through the work of Jesus Christ. And we will be using the shorter catechism as our guide to to think through those benefits. Question 21 of our shorter catechism asks, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is given that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that question implies that there is a Redeemer, that God has chosen to, to save for himself a people, that he has not abandoned us to the misery of our sin. And the Redeemer whom he has supplied is none other than his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, whom he did not spare, but put forward as the sacrifice for our sins. And questions 22 through 28 of our Shorter Catechism deal with all that he did as our Redeemer. His his work of prophet, priest, and king, both in his humiliation and in his exaltation. All that which we considered in the weeks leading up to Easter. But then the the catechism asks this question, how are we made partakers of that redemption? How do we become beneficiaries of the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer is given that we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ through the effectual application of it to us, By the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who who takes the work of Christ and applies it to us. How? By uniting us to Christ through faith. The, The Spirit comes and works in our heart, works faith in us, so that we might be united to Christ, and being united to Christ might receive all of the benefits of His work. And we're going to be thinking about that in the the weeks to come, about how we become beneficiaries. But before we think about the how, uh, we we want to consider more closely the the what. What is it that we are receiving? What are these benefits? What does it mean to be a beneficiary? And to answer that question, we're going to begin uh, with uh, the questions in the Shorter Catechism that, that set forth those benefits. And as Sam said, uh, those benefits the, uh, in the Confession are divided into three categories. There are the benefits that we receive in this life, the benefits that we receive at death, and then the benefits that we will receive at the resurrection. And this morning we are beginning with the benefits that we receive in this life. The Catechism says that those who are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany 
or flow through them. So that is our outline for the next several weeks. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. We're going to be considering these benefits that we receive through faith in Christ in this life, beginning this morning with that first benefit, which is justification. And it is that same justification that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 3. Here Paul is is communicating to the Romans the good news of our justification. But if you are familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, you know that he begins his presentation of the gospel, the, the presentation of the good news of God's salvation. He begins that with the bad news of God's wrath. Just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. You will see that that Paul here is, he says in verse 15, he is eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He wants to get to Rome so that he can can proclaim the good news of God's salvation, the the good news of of God's power to save. And And he says that in verse 16. He says, the reason I'm so eager to preach this gospel is because I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So this is what Paul is eager to preach. He is eager to preach the good news of God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. But if you look at verse 18, you'll see that that he begins that discussion with the wrath of God. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Of men, men who have suppressed the truth by their works of disobedience. And that is the, the focus of, of chapter one as he as he outlines for his readers the, the evidence of the unrighteousness of men, these men who have failed to honor God as God and give him thanks, and all the, the unrighteousness that has flowed out of that rebellion. But of course, in chapter 2, he he points out that this is not true only among the Gentiles, not only among the pagans, but it's true among the the Jews as well. Those who had received from God his very word, his, his words of life, they too, nevertheless, were lawbreakers justly condemned, which is the conclusion that he reaches in the verses right before the verses that Sam read. Look again at what he writes. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And so he begins with the the bad news of God's wrath. He shows that all people, without exception, are subject to that wrath, are are objects of that wrath, without hope of, of saving themselves. Now in my experience today, people struggle with this idea. They, even in the church, people struggle with the idea of, of God's wrath. On, on the one hand, they, they don't believe that they are deserving of God's wrath. But on the other hand, they also feel their guilt very deeply. And so at the same time, they are denying their guilt even as they are crushed by it. They, they will admit that they aren't perfect. They will admit maybe even that they are sinners in some sense, but they certainly do not see themselves as deserving of the wrath of God that Paul is talking about here in the early chapters of Romans. They, they know that, that, they're, that they're not perfect, but they, 
They don't see their sin for what it is. They don't think they're deserving of that. Maybe some, but, but not them. And yet, despite their rejection of, of their guilt and their just condemnation, they have this persistent, deep sense of shame. They know they aren't what they should be. They know that they don't measure up even to their own standards, much less the standards of God. They, they know themselves to be profoundly flawed. I suspect you've experienced something of this internal conflict yourself. There, there is something in you that recoils at the idea of you being deserving of God's wrath. You, you don't want to believe that. And yet, at the same time, you know yourself to be crushed by this sense of guilt, to be sensed by this, this sense of shame. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle in this way, one of the reasons that we have this internal conflict, one of the reasons that we, we feel this confusion is that in our culture today, the, the concept of sin itself has in, has in many ways disappeared. In 1973, a, a prominent psychiatrist named Carl Minniger published a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And he, he recognized that in our, our culture, we were on a, a trajectory towards erasing sin altogether. Sin was disappearing and it was being replaced in the culture's imagination with ideas of, of disease or addiction or victimization. We no longer talked about sin, but we, we talked simply about our illness or our brokenness. Now, illness and brokenness and disease, these are biblical concepts. But the problem is that they were no longer being used to understand sin. They were replacing sin. And this began long before Miniger wrote his book. Some recent scholars have, have traced the roots of this disappearance of sin all the way back to thinkers like Nietzsche and Freud and, and Marx. Nietzsche famously argued that because modern man had killed God, they now needed to cast off the burdens of his law. And he didn't do this in a, in a regretful way. Rather, he, he saw this as progress. He believed that as people more and more rejected God and religion, that those older reflexes created by the, uh, the feelings of, of guilt and shame, that they would eventually just melt away and that people would be free. Similarly, Freud believed that, that guilt was purely the subjective uh, feeling that was the, the result of, uh, of, of the, 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 the burdensome laws of the church and of culture. And he thought that people needed simply to, to be able to step back and, and see that, and, and then through such analysis they would be free of their guilty feelings. Marx taught something similar, saying that all moral claims are merely power plays by those who, who benefit from maintaining the status quo. And therefore, again, he thought that the, the solution to man's problem, the, the solution to man's turmoil was to cast off the cultural mores of those with power. 
This is the air we breathe. This is the culture in which we live. Guilt is merely a feeling, and it's a, it's a false feeling created by, by the power plays of, of the religious and of those in power. And reflecting on this history in his most recent book, Tim Keller writes, So with these prominent philosophers and thinkers having become so dominant in our culture, and with secularization of, of Western society continuing at an increasing pace, you would think that just as Nietzsche predicted, the experience of guilt and shame must have diminished across society. Since the, the thoughts of these men have, have, have taken such a, a deep hold in our culture, surely we don't deal with guilt anymore. Surely we don't deal with, with shame anymore. But Keller says, clearly this has not happened. But why not? Why has Nietzsche's guilt-free society not come about? What is the reason for what another writer calls the strange persistence of guilt? Why does a, a culture that has, that has killed God and cast off his laws, why do they still feel shame? Why do modern people find themselves in this strange position of feeling like sinners even when they don't have a concept of sin? Well, the answer to this question is found in the objective reality of guilt. You see, guilt was never a mere feeling. Guilt was, was never merely feeling bad about something we've done, feeling that, 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 that we had, were somehow weren't enough. It, it was never something that could simply be uh, erased by a, a change of the mind, a change of the self-perception, an increase in our self-esteem. The truth is that we feel the shame of guilt, and, and maybe even you here this morning feel the shame of guilt because you are objectively guilty. That's why you feel the shame of guilt. <laughs> because you are guilty. You were created by God and you were created for God. You have a moral obligation to him who, who spoke you into existence. And yet you have failed to fulfill that obligation. You have failed to honor him as God and have, and have instead chosen to honor yourself. That's what it means to be a sinner. A sinner is one who has rejected God as God and has placed himself on the throne. Who has made himself the Lord of his own life. Who has chosen to do whatever is right in his own eyes. Now at first glance, this may not seem like a, a big deal. Surely not something deserving of the, the, the wrath and fury that Paul speaks about in the early chapters of, of Roman. Yes, we may struggle to honor God as, as God, but that's sort of ethereal. Why, why, why does that matter? Maybe it seems to you a little bit like rolling through a stop sign. It's not really that big a deal. But think about it for a moment. What if everybody rolled through stop signs? What if no one ever stopped? What if, what if no one ever obeyed the, the laws of the, the road? There's a, there's a joke about two brothers in a, in a Texas town. And they owned the town because they owned the oil. 
And so as a reporter went to, to interview them and to, to find out about their, their life as the, uh, as the power brokers in this town, he was riding around with, with one of them in his big Cadillac. And, and as he rode, drove down the road, he went through one red light after another. And the reporter wanted to know, why, why do you feel free to do that? He says, well, this is my town. I do what I want. Until he came to a green light and slammed on his brakes. And he came to a screeching halt. And now the reporter was really confused. Why? Why would you do that? He said, well, because my brother might be coming. <laughs> and he understood that, that the laws, when they are abandoned, they lead to chaos. They lead to to death. And so while we may not fully understand, we may not fully understand the significance of, of abandoning God as God, we see the implications in our daily lives. We see the evil that serving ourselves first has done. Think about it. The sum of the evil in this present evil age, it is the, it is the sum of the countless ordinary everyday decisions of people just like us. One of the horrors at the Nuremberg trial was that the victims came into the courtroom and saw that the, the monsters who had perpetrated such evil against them were just ordinary people. If my daily decisions were multiplied by the sum total of humanity, the world would be much the way that it is. If my selfishness was, was manifest in the lives of, of every person, this world is what we would get. This age has, has been described as, a, as an age red in tooth and claw. And that is largely because people like you and me again and again and again do not honor God as God but put our own interests and desires before those of others. And we know it. We know the harm that our decisions have caused. We, we know the harm that our actions have done. This is why none of us could bear to be fully exposed. We, we know that our hearts are desperately wicked. We, we don't want anyone to know the, the things that we think and the, the words that we say in our minds. We know that from our hearts flow all manner of evil and destructive behaviors. You, you may try to, to hide this. You, you may try to blame others. You, you may try to carefully curate your, your public image. But at the end of the way, you, at the end of the day, you know this is not the way of truth. You know that you are guilty. And the truth is, you feel that guilt because it's true. We are sinners. This is what Paul is saying in verses 19 and through 20. Look again at what he writes. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The law speaks to us. We were created by God. We are under his word. His law is for us. But what is the result of being under the law? When the law speaks, what does it say? Our mouth is stopped. And we are held accountable to God. To have your mouth stopped means there's no longer any excuse that you can put forward 
for your behavior. There, there's no longer anything you can say to, to justify yourself, there, to excuse yourself. You are guilty, you know it, and everyone knows that your mouth is stopped. There's nothing you can say. You are standing guilty before God because by works of the law, no human being can be justified. None of us can justify ourselves. None of us can, can do what is necessary to establish our own righteousness with God, but rather on the contrary. When we are judged according to the law, we are exposed as sinners. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. We are guilty. We, we feel shame and guilt because it's true. And, and we do not do ourselves any service by downplaying that. Simply speaking positively to yourself, trying to bolster your self-esteem, pretending everything's okay. These are solutions that do not work. Because guilt is not a mere feeling. It is an objective reality. And it's because guilt is real that we cannot escape it. But notice, it's also because guilt is real that the good news is such good news. In ourselves, we have no hope. By works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. But this is precisely where the good news of God's salvation answers our need. We are without hope in ourselves, but he has not left us to ourselves. Jesus is our hope of glory. Look again at, at verse 21. What does Paul write? He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Now you may know that... <clears throat> especially in our circles, there is some debate about what exactly this phrase, the righteousness of God, means. What is, what is Paul talking about here when he, when he speaks about the, the righteousness of God? Most naturally, it refers to God's own righteousness, the, the righteousness of, of God's character. But it could possibly refer to the righteousness that comes from God. Certainly Paul speaks of a righteousness from God in his letter to the Philippians. He said, I had no righteousness of my own, but I had a righteousness that was from God apart from the law. And he could have that same idea in mind here. This is what, what Luther believed about this passage. For so long he, he hated the righteousness of God because he felt the threat of it. <laughs> But then he began to read these passages as if it was not God's righteousness, but rather the righteousness that God gives that Paul was talking about. Now, I've wrestled with this question for a long time, and I have swung back and forth in my opinion. But, but at the end of the day, I always end up back believing that what Paul is talking about here is God's own righteousness. Luther uh, was on to something, but I don't think he read this verse correctly. <laughs> This is not about a righteousness from God. This is God's righteousness. But how can the revelation of God's righteousness be good news? The problem is that, that God's righteousness is a source of condemnation. It's what Paul has just been saying. He must condemn us because he is righteous and we are not. The law exposes us as sinners. He, he must condemn us because we are deserving of condemnation. Because he is righteous, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished, and we 
are guilty. But if this is so, how can God's righteousness be good news? That's the the question. How can God's righteousness be a source of salvation rather than condemnation? And I think that's exactly the question that Paul is answering here. And he says, if, if God relates to us through the law, then his righteousness is a threat. If God relates to us through the law, then his righteousness can only condemn. But that's the point. Now, in Christ, God no longer relates to us through the law. His righteousness is now seen apart from the law. His righteousness is now seen in and through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, you do not stand before God under the law. You stand before God now in Christ. And Christ is your righteousness. Because he is the righteous one who stood in your place. His righteousness is the source of your salvation rather than your condemnation. But but how can that be righteous? How can the righteous God do that? Well, again, it's what Paul is explaining beginning in verse 23. Notice what he says. All have sinned and are justly condemned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the reality. But now, All may be justified. How? By his grace as a gift. We are justified not through the law, but through God's grace. His his justification is a gift given to us. That is, righteousness is not something that we have earned. It's not something that we have established for ourselves through our keeping of the law. But rather, our righteousness, the the righteousness by which we are justified, is a righteousness that has been given to us as the gift of God's grace. It is the righteousness of another that has been counted as ours. That's the gospel. Christ has stood in your place. You have stood in him. And being in Christ, his righteousness is now counted as your righteousness. And it's on the basis of his righteousness that you are declared righteous before God. But how does this work? How can can God give righteousness? Only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice again what he says. He is our righteousness. Propitiation. That's one of those words we we don't use very often, and it's a word we never use outside of church. (laughs) What does it mean? What is is propitiation? Well, it's a word you ought to get to know. (laughs) It it is a word that that is uh, of of great comfort to the one who is able to hear it, because propitiation, a, a propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. And Christ is our propitiation. We were, by nature, objects of God's wrath. But Christ has come as our propitiation. He has come as the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. So that Paul can say later, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Wrath has been poured out in 
full. His blood paid the price of our redemption. Because his blood was the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He took our punishment. Understand that. Our our punishment was not merely set aside. God did not overlook sin. He did not ignore sin. He dealt with it, and he dealt with it decisively, but he dealt with it in Christ. Understand that because God is righteous, he cannot and, and could not and would not simply overlook sin. He would not leave the guilty unpunished, and that is good news. We, we sometimes think that that makes God a vindictive God or, or a harsh God, a severe God. But understand this, you ought to be thankful for the fact that God cannot overlook sin. It is your only hope. Your only hope of, of life in the age to come. Your, on, your only hope of a, of a life uh, purified. Your only hope of a world put right is that God will not ignore sin. He is going to deal with it. He is going to to punish it. He's going to destroy it. This is what a holy God does. But of course the problem with that is that we're part of the problem. The problem with that is that that we are are sinners. The problem is that that if God undoes wickedness, if God undoes evil, then he is going to have to undo us. It's what Isaiah felt when he stood in the presence of a holy God. He says, I am undone for I am unclean. I cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And he was right. He could not stand as a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And this is what Christ has done. Christ has come and stood in our place so that we can stand in him before the Father. It's the only reason that we can gather here this morning without fear. It's the only reason that we can gather in the presence of God without being destroyed. We come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel because we come in Christ's name. He is our righteousness. That is what it means to be justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It is to be declared that that you have not sinned. That you are free of the guilt of sin. But more than that, that you have fulfilled all of the obligations of the law. This is what Christ has done for us. In him, our punishment has been poured out. And in him, his righteousness has been given to us. And so we are righteous before God in Christ Jesus. And the announcement of that righteousness is a final and forever announcement. When God declares us to be righteous, he declares us to be righteous once and forever. As we will see later in this series, God's judgment, the judgment that he has already pronounced on believers, that judgment will be openly acknowledged on the last day. But understand this, the judgment is already in. If you are in Christ by faith, If he is your Lord and Savior, you are right now presently justified. You are right in the eyes of God. You are without guilt. None can bring any accusation against you. And you have a right to all of the blessings of the covenant. This is what it means to be justified. This is why justification is, is, is such good news because the ungodly, those who were justly condemned, have been forgiven 
and have been declared righteous in the sight of God, apart from the law, as the gift of His mere grace. Under the law, you were under a curse. Apart from Christ, you are without hope. You cannot stand before a holy God. You feel guilty because you are. And if you come into the presence of God, standing upon the merits of your own record, you will be condemned. But you never have to stand before God alone because you have an advocate. The righteous one stands with you. More than that, he stands for you. In him, you are righteous before God. And this has some profound implications for the way that that we live in this present age. It has some profound implications for, for the way that that we do life here and now. I I want to mention only three this morning. Quickly, I want to to mention three implications of, of being justified. The first is simply this, that when you are justified, and when you know yourself to be justified by faith as the gift of His grace, you no longer experience the law as a condemning burden, but you now experience the law as a delight. Do you understand that? You see, in the scriptures, we we have something like Psalm 119 that is delighting in the law. And elsewhere, we we have scriptures that say the law brings only death. And and people are always confused. How, How can the scripture speak in both ways? How can it speak out of both sides of its mouth? Because when you stand before the law alone, it condemns. But when you stand before the law in Christ, It becomes the blueprint for your flourishing. It becomes the law of perfect freedom. It becomes the law that defines for you the life for which you were created. Do you understand that you do not have to keep the law in order to earn God's love? Rather, you have been loved by God in Christ and are now free to receive His law as gracious, fatherly instruction. What the song says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. So the first way that you can sort of measure your own understanding of your justification is is simply this. How do you relate to the law? Is the law of God your delight? Or is it that crushing burden that perpetually reminds you of your guilt? How do you relate to the law? Secondly, how do you relate to your suffering? Because the second transformation that comes from knowing yourself to be justified is that discipline is now experienced as love rather than wrath. Discipline is often, if not always, suffering. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is not pleasant. But when we know ourselves to be justified, We no longer experience God's discipline as wrath. We we no longer come away from our suffering thinking of it as, as demonstrations that God must not really be for us, that he must not really love us. But rather when we know his love, demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, when we know ourselves to be beloved by the Father, when we know ourselves to be justified, it doesn't make the suffering pleasant. We may still groan, we will still grieve. 
But we will grieve as those who know the hope of our justification. And we will receive that suffering as the love of a father. Because we know that God's wrath has been poured out in full upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, God disciplines, but not as an expression of his anger. Rather, God is working in us for our good. He is like a father raising his children to be mature men and women. He's like a father seeking to raise his children to be adults. That is what our suffering is now. It has been transformed. It is no longer a a condemnation. It is no longer an expression of wrath. It is now the fatherly discipline of the one who loves us. And so again, let me ask you, how do you experience your suffering? Do you experience your suffering as one who has been justified? And then finally, just let me say it quickly. To know ourselves to be justified transforms our shame. Apart from Christ, shame is an accuser. But in Christ, our shame becomes a shepherd. Yes, we will still feel shame, and that is good. It is not a virtue to be shameless. It is not a a virtue to be immune to shame. We are still sinners, justified, but still sinners. We still do shameful things, and when we do, we need to feel the shame of our sin. Our culture thinks of shame as, as almost universally bad, but it is foolish. It is good to feel the shame of our sin, but when we feel it as a justified sinner, that shame will now be a shepherd leading us back to our Father, leading us back to His grace, rather than an accuser causing us to hide amongst the trees. And so again, let me ask you, what do you do with your shame? Is your shame a shepherd leading you back to the Father? Or is it the accuser That makes you feel condemned. You see, in all these ways, knowing ourselves to be justified transforms our life. It it transforms the law into delight. It transforms suffering into discipline. It transforms shame into a shepherd. Because this is the fountain and the beginning of the gospel. Justification is not the whole gospel. But it is the first step of the gospel. And if you misstep here, you will never get to the rest of the story. That's why Luther said that this is the hinge upon which the church turns. This is the point at which the church stands or falls. If you get this wrong, you lose the gospel. And so if this is a struggle for you, if you struggle to know and believe yourself to be justified before God, if you you struggle to believe that God is truly for you in Christ, then do not allow yourself to move on. I know this is the elementary things. You you learned justification when you were just a kid. But you need to sit with it. You need to soak in it. You need to let it dwell in you richly. Because you need to know this, not just at an intellectual level. You need to know this at a heart level. You need to know that you are justified in Christ. There is now no condemnation for you. Every blessing is rightfully yours 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you struggle to believe that, sit with Paul's words and ask God to open the eyes of your heart to the full glory of what is yours in Christ. And do it again and again and again as often as necessary because Christ is your justification. He is your righteousness in him. You have been declared righteous before God now and forever. And because such a blessing is ours in him by faith alone, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you humbly asking that you would cause these truths to dwell richly in our hearts. Open our eyes, Father, to the wonder of our justification. Open our hearts to to receive its comfort and allow its power to transform our lives that we might be set free, Father, to live to the praise of your glory both now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.